Well, if you're not bored with it yet, we're still working on this sermon series about prayer. Prayer simply being conversations that we have with God, and we're looking throughout Scripture, recognizing places in the Gospel of Luke where God had conversations with people. Jesus had conversations with people. Sometime in Scripture, these conversations come in the form of dreams or visions. Prophetic utterances are some of the ways that God has spoken with human beings. Angels sometimes have conversations with people. We recognize in the Psalms this implicit conversation going on between the psalmists and God. In the New Testament, if Jesus is God, then therefore people who are having conversations with Jesus are essentially praying. And there's something we can learn from those conversations from those prayers. We can appropriate some of that grace for ourselves. And the reason I have suggested that it's so important for us to spend this many weeks, oh good, I didn't hear any groans, this many weeks talking about prayer is because prayer is probably the one thing which will combat the cultural forces which are trying to convince us that God isn't here, God isn't real, God isn't relevant, God isn't paying attention, God is dead. That's what our culture, that's what the way of the worlds would tell us is happening. God isn't here. And all too often we go through dark periods when it seems like God isn't here. Lynn mentioned about prayers bouncing off the ceiling. Sometimes the heavens are as brass, right? Can I get a witness? And so how important is it for us to practice prayer disciplines that give God an opportunity not only to answer us, not only to reveal himself to us, for us especially to know the presence, the transforming presence of God. So we're paying attention to conversations in the book of Luke, conversations which are really a prayer relationship between human beings and, and God. We're going to look at one of those conversations this morning, but first let me point out that prayer is a two-way conversation. I mean, that may seem so obvious that we don't have to mention it. But I don't know about you, but there are times when I get the impression that, you know, God just says something. And we don't have a part in the conversation. God just, by divine fiat, says, I mean, and there are times like that, but there are probably more times than we realize, times when there's give and take between human beings and God. The men's Bible study is, is reading through a book on Genesis by a Jewish man, Dennis Prager, and he points out that the Jewish people, not only ancient Jewish people, but Jewish people today are notorious for talking back to God, <laughs> for getting a little salty with God, if you might say that. There are some examples of that. Genesis chapter 18 is this conversation going on between these three men, three angels. Some have said this was the Trinity that came to Abraham. And one of the things that they, they uh, had a conversation with him about was the fact that they were about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Abraham's nephew Lot was living in Sodom, so he had a little vested interest in that. And so I'm a little sure that he was saying, well, you know, while I would love to see you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord, I do have a nephew and his family there. So would you spare Sodom if there were 50 righteous people there? Oh, okay, fine, 50. Well, how about 45, you know, five less? Okay, 45. He's on a roll now. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? This is a fascinating give and take going on between God and the form of these angels and Abraham. Gets them all the way down to 10, and then they go and they do what they did, of course. But God is willing to engage in an actual two-way conversation, some give and take. God is willing to allow Abraham to play a part in what he is about to do. I think that's fascinating. First, or Second Chronicles chapter 1, Solomon has been uh, established as King David's successor. And God meets him in the tabernacle. And says, ask, Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever you want. Have you ever had God ask that of you? So you go ahead. Ask whatever you want. What would you ask for? Okay, we won't go there. He says, ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, of course, says, give me wisdom and knowledge. Ding, 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 good answer. So God responds and said, since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth, possessions, and honor, then I will give you wisdom and knowledge. But I'll also give you wealth and possessions and honor. Solomon goes on to be one of the richest people who have ever lived. God cares about what we desire. God gives us options for what we want to do with our life and what we want from him. Of course, sometimes God will give us the things that undoubtedly he knows will also bring us down. What was it that brought Solomon down at the end of his life, that would be wealth, possessions, honor, and hundreds of wives and concubines. He asked for the right thing, wisdom, discernment. God gave him everything, undoubtedly knowing that some of those things would be his undoing. There's a real conversation, isn't it? Judges chapter 6, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, the story of Gideon. God calls Gideon this least of the least of the least. Says, I want you to be the one that will lead the armies of Israel to throw off the oppression of the Midianites. Gideon said, now let me get this right. I'm going to do this mighty thing. You're, you're calling me, pipsqueak that I am, to do this extraordinary, lead this extraordinary battle and drive out the Midianites. He says, 
if you will save Israel, God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, let me have a couple little tests just to see if, if that really is going to happen. You know, I, I'd, I'd like the ground to be dry and the fleece to be wet, and sure enough, it happens. And the next morning, I'd like the, the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. This is a little bit of a testing, going back and forth with God. This is a conversation that's not over in, in a, the blink of an eye. This is, this is quite a conversation going on here. The Psalms, so often Psalms begin with thoughts and feelings of anger and discouragement and even accusations against God. But in the course of that conversation, in the course of that psalm, the psalmist changes his mind and literally talks himself out of his disappointment with God, talks himself into giving glorious praise to God. Isn't it nice that in conversations, God sometimes waits for us to come around to see things his way? 1 Samuel chapter 8, we don't always ask for the right thing, do we? But that doesn't mean that God won't give it to us anyway. Israel had been living for hundreds of years under the sporadic rule of judges that God would raise up from time to time to lead them and especially to drive out those that were oppressing them. Samuel was the last of those judges, and his sons weren't shaping up to be what he had hoped, and so the Israelites were a little fed up with this. God shows up sometimes, and he doesn't show up other times, and, and they were a little discouraged that maybe the next judge wasn't going to be much of a judge, and so they demanded that God would give them a king. We want a king like all of the other people that live around us, all of the people that surround us. We want a king. Samuel says, well, you know what a king will do, right? I'll take your daughters and your sons and your money, and it's not going to be good. But since you asked for it, I'll give it to you. Along with all of the negative consequences that Samuel had warned them of. So prayer is this two-way conversation in which we have perhaps much more latitude in talking to God than we might have thought and in which God responds in ways that we might not have imagined. Join me in Luke chapter 15, and let's look at one of these occasions. Luke, Luke chapter 15 is the collection of three great parables related to each other, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and finally the parable of the lost son one of the most famous parables of all time, one of the most recognizable things that Jesus ever said. And the primary meaning of this parable is the amazing grace of God, right? But what I want to focus on this morning are two bits of conversation that are represented in this parable, two bits of conversation and how we can learn some important lessons about prayer through them. Let me begin reading at chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus said, there's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided his property between them. A a man with two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The younger son's conversation here is demanding, isn't it? I can imagine the tone of voice. This is a younger boy who has probably spent most of his life being pushy. Maybe he's a bit of a bully. But he comes to his father before his father is ready to die and demands something that really is only going to happen after the father dies. Oh, he might have divided his property and kind of lived in the in-law apartment for a while, but the younger son is basically saying, I wish you were dead, so give me my inheritance now because I've got things I want to do, places I want to go, people I want to see, stuff I want to do. So there's a demandingness in his tone of voice. The younger son in this story, of course, represents who? All together now, us, me in particular. And the father in this story represents who? God. So we are demanding that God give us our inheritance. Give us the stuff that's going to make us happy. Give us the stuff that we've been longing for all of these years. And so the father does. And the son quickly liquidates his assets and leaves. And you know the story, right? Off in that far country, there's the the riotous living, the loss of all of the money, there's the humiliation of working on a pig farm, and there's the finally coming to his senses, changing his mind about the role that he has played in this family. He's no longer insisting on being a favored son, but he's willing to go back as a servant. But he knows that he needs to go back. And so when he gets back home, there's a completely different kind of conversation, isn't there? (laughs) No longer demanding, now offering to be a servant, to be a slave. A completely different kind of conversation between us and God, between the younger son and the father. Now let's pick up the story with the second brother, the second bit of conversation, beginning at verse 25. Meanwhile... The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Note the contrast between the younger brother who at the beginning of this parable asked for what was inappropriate and the older brother at the end of this parable who failed to ask for what was appropriate. He could have been partying all of these years, but he never asked for it. Instead, he saw himself as a slave in his father's household. This contrast between asking for which that which is inappropriate or not asking for that which is appropriate. I hear in this older brother's voice pent-up resentment against his younger brother, but I also hear uh, uh, resentment aimed at his father. There was shame and humiliation for the family caused by the younger brother asking for his inheritance. There had been all kinds of negative consequences as a result of that. The son liquidated his assets to turn it into money, which means maybe a third or a half of the family's property was gone, no longer available. And now he comes back home and wants to be a part of the family again. Do you hear the resentment in that older brother's voice? Dad, how could you have done such a thing like that? Why would you grant a request like that? It's bad enough that the brother asked for it, but it's even worse that the father acceded to that demand. He's angry at his father's unfairness. Why didn't you treat my younger brother the way he should have been treated? It's really a resentment based in a theology of scarcity. Meaning that he didn't believe that God had enough to go around or that God wouldn't be able to give him what he desired. I wonder sometimes, do the father's lavish gifts on the younger brother when he came back give an indication of what he had always been willing to give to the older brother? Not just a party, but shoes on the feet, a robe on his back, a ring on his finger. That was always available to the older brother, but he never asked for it. I believe in a God who may give me what I ask for, knowing that sometimes a bullheaded person won't learn lessons unless they're taught in the school of hard knocks. Did your parents ever give you what you asked for? knowing that somewhere down the line you were going to pay the price for it, but you weren't going to learn the lesson if you didn't go through the school of hard knocks? Sometimes I believe God does that. Jesus is telling us a story in which God would be willing to do something like that. But I also believe in a God who may not give me the appropriate things I'm unwilling to ask for especially if I don't ask because I resent his grace in the lives of other people. That's going to take us a while to get our minds around. 
Do we assume that God just pours out stuff without our asking for it? Uh, Maybe he does. But is it possible that we might learn the lesson from this older brother that God wants us to ask? God is willing to give us the desires of our heart, but he may want us to ask. And if we don't ask because we're jealous or resentful, uh, I suspect that he's especially not going to give us those things. So again, this parable is primarily about the grace of God. But it has other lessons to teach us about the conversations that we should be having and shouldn't be having with God. And what will make the difference in our conversations with God? I would suggest that we need to a God we need to allow God to edit our prayer life. To edit our prayer life. What does that mean? Uh, what is an editor? An editor is a person that takes what I say and they tweak it a little bit to make it more understandable or more accurate or more powerful. I would suggest that God has a role to play in our prayer life. God can serve as an editor in our prayer life. An example of that. I should ask God to reveal what motives are going on in my life that are driving this request or prayer. Why am I asking? Am I asking because I'm greedy? Am I asking because I'm selfish? Am I asking because I'm resentful? Am I asking because I have some disordered attachments in my life and this seems to be the thing that will satisfy them? Am I asking because I have some confused priorities? Perhaps I ought to stop and say, Lord, here's what I would like. Here's what I want you to do. But are my my motives pure in asking for this? Secondly, not only should we invite God to edit our words, but we ought to invite God or help us to listen to the tone of our voice through the ears of God. Lynn does an awful lot of texting. You probably recognize this. You've probably been on the receiving end of this, which means that, I mean, and it's not just one two, three, four, five words. It's paragraphs, I think. And, and I'm the one that gets to hear her at home or in the office dictating to her telephone this text. Careful. <laughs> <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me to, to imagine what you're receiving and what she said, because when she's speaking into her phone, there's all this tone of voice you know, she's accenting certain words and she's emphasizing certain things. And I can tell there's, you know, feelings behind this. But, of course, none of that comes out on your end, does it? <laughs> Unless you know her well and you can kind of read into that. But be careful of that, okay, Denise? You know, that's not even a foolproof thing. <laughs> Maybe we've got a reverse issue when we're talking to God because he hears all of our tone of voice. <laughs> He hears the anger and the resentment and the frustrations and the discouragement and the defeat and all of those kind of things. He hears it. 
I would love to be able to say it with the tone of voice that he wants to hear. A third thing that we might do to invite God to edit our prayers, it's called contemplative intercession. Intercession is praying for yourself or other people or other situations. And if you're like me, usually the first thing we ask for, somebody's dying, somebody's in pain, uh, some horrible situation is unfolding before us, we've got countries around the world that are attacking one another, and you know, nuclear bombs are now being talked about and things like that. You know, there's, there's the things that we know to ask for, or we as human beings would ask for. Lord, stop this. Solve this. Meet this need. Do this now. Because we're human beings. And we can't help but be that. But one step beyond that is to stop and say, Lord, what do you want to do in this situation? What are we six months from now going to say was the silver lining in the bad situation I've been praying about? What do you want to accomplish here? Even though we can't figure out how you're going to do it. You know, how is God going to solve the sin problem of the world? He's going to have his son die on a cross. Not the first thing I would have done, right? Oftentimes the way God accomplishes his purpose are ways that just don't make sense to us. So contemplative intercession is saying, this is what I'd really like you to do, but Lord... What do you want to accomplish? I would much rather pray and ask God to do what God wants to do than to pray and ask God to do what I want him to do. Chances of success? (laughs) Chances of success? Yeah. So ask God about the motives in my life. Ask God about my tone of voice and what he would really like to hear. Ask God what he wants to accomplish in these situations. A couple examples that quickly come to mind of how Jesus allowed his heavenly father to edit his prayer life. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, take this cup, I don't want to go through with this. Please, is there any other way for this plan of salvation to be accomplished other than me dying on a Roman cross. Take this cup away. And then he allows God to edit his prayer. And it ends up coming out, not my will, but your will be done. You know, I must have mentioned that phrase hundreds of times in the last three years. It's, it's, it's just a, it's one of those prayers that we can't live without praying. It may start out Lord, I don't want this to happen. Take this away. Some Find another plan. But eventually it needs to come back around to not my will, but your will be done. A second example of Jesus' prayer being edited by his heavenly Father on the cross, he begins praying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. And that's all of that conversation, that's all of that prayer, that's all of that psalm that's recorded in the Gospels. Jesus said the first verse, and then he stopped. But you know that he didn't really stop. 
He knew that psalm from memory. And so he might have stopped speaking the words out loud, but he was continuing to pray that prayer. And by the time he got to verse 22, it wasn't, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But instead it was, for God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. That's a completely different prayer, isn't it? Imagine how our relationship with our Heavenly Father would be different if we gave God the opportunity to edit our prayer life, if we had more careful conversations with him. Because we believe that Jesus is fully human, we can see that he had to learn some of these lessons himself, and we've seen it in these verses, especially not to be demanding in his conversations with his Heavenly Father. The result is that we, fo- we can follow his example and we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, not resentment or demandingness. This is a wonderful passage from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, tempted to be resentful, tempted to be demanding, tempted to be selfish, tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Some of his prayers he allowed to be edited. (laughs) And the the result of this is that we can now approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to conclude the service this morning by sharing the Lord's Supper together. something that makes absolutely no sense from a human point of view. How can God dying on a cross solve any problem? But God in his infinite wisdom and strength accomplished that, not only to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We'd invite you to come forward, uh, exit through the right-hand end of your row, come to the person that's standing at the front of your section, receive the elements. Remember, there are two cups stacked together, so take both of them. Uh, Return to your seat through the left. Tom is going to be up here with the gluten-free tray if you need that, so help yourself to that. If the ushers would come forward. Let's pray. Father, we are about to receive these elements representing the broken body of Christ and the poured out blood of our Savior. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to your heavenly Father, allowing him 
through that conversation in the garden to have his way, not your way or anybody else's way. But Lord, we thank you for demonstrating to us that you were willing to humble yourself and seek your Father's will. Lord, we pray that as we receive these elements this morning that we would allow you to edit our prayers. What are we asking for this morning? Where do we need salvation today, Father? Where do we need your grace in our life? And how do we expect that to happen? Lord, as we hold these elements in our hand, we pray that you would remind us of Christ's humility. We love you, Father. Lord, we thank you for this reminder this morning. A reminder of Christ's obedience. A reminder of the Father's lavish grace. A reminder of the prayer life that Jesus had for 33 years, back and forth with his heavenly Father, being conformed to the will of his heavenly Father setting aside all that was selfish, all that was resentful. That he might not only be the example for us, but he might be the power to make us make it possible for us to live Christ-like lives this week. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.